All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. Thank you. Um, been out for a while on vacation and uh, had many adventures uh, this summer, but it is, again, great to be back with you to continue our conversation in uh, the book of Ephesians, this conversation we're calling Exiles. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Ephesians chapter 5. My name is Steve, by the way. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, while we were gone... Um, Man, a lot of people helped kind of keep things together, which is uh, something I am very, very grateful for. So thank you to all of you who have been serving and just faithful to be here and be a part of what's going on at Discovery over the last couple of weeks. I do want to say um, a particular thank you to both Jeff, who was just up here giving announcements, and Antonio, who handled the teaching while I was gone. I listened to them. Um, when I had time during my break and just really enjoyed being able to hear their, their excellent teaching um, over the last couple of weeks. So they've done a great job leading us through chapters 4 and 5 um, in Ephesians up to where we are today in verse 21. I do got to say one thing, though, about their teaching before we get going here. And this is, really, this is really for you, Antonio. And it's really actually for Gabby, who is not here, which is too bad. But that she needs to, like, charge you for all of the stories that, that you use at her expense. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's like a contract we need to write up or something, but I feel like she could benefit from that in some way. All right. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I want to pray, and then uh, we'll jump this morning for uh, the opportunity to gather together, to, to be in this place, to have a space to come and to worship and to uh, grow in relationship with you and with each other to take communion, to hear scripture, to sing these songs. God, what a gift it is to be able to gather in, the, in this way. I pray now for our time in your word. Would you speak to us today through this passage? This is a passage of scripture that is uh, debated, that people have strong opinions on, uh, that... Uh, people in the church have argued about for a long time. Would you make it new and fresh for us today as we speak? Amen. All right, let's start with baseball. <clears throat> Last year, in 2021, the San Francisco Giants, my San Francisco Giants, won 107 games. Okay, that is, if you know anything about baseball, to win 100 games is a very good year. To win 107 is actually extremely rare. I think in 125 plus years of baseball, only like 10 teams have ever won that many games or more. So it was this incredible season. And it was even more incredible because while they were obviously a talented team, they did not have the same kind of star power that like the Dodgers or the Yankees or some of these big franchises have. And so there was this question all year long, how are these guys doing this? They're, they're clearly good baseball players, but 107 wins, this is ridiculous. And the thing that was often cited about their success was the willingness of a wide variety of players to accept a lesser role, to basically share their role with another player. And so by sharing, they were able to maximize different players' talents even if it cost individual players some statistics or some playing time. And, and it worked unbelievably well, 107 wins. Now, this year is not going as well, all right? 
they are going to fall way short of 107 wins. Maybe like 20, 25, or 30 wins short of that. And so, of course, the, the question is, why are they not doing as well as they did last year? And there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that. One of them, of course, is that we miss, we miss Buster so much. Yes, thank you for that. That, that, that spoke to me. Um, but one of the things that has been cited as a main reason for their struggles this, this season, there just has not been that same buy-in, that, that same willingness of individuals to sacrifice for the larger team. You might say it this way, the 2022 Giants are suffering from a mutual submission deficit. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of mutual submission this morning. All right, so... Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, I think this is one of the more misunderstood passages, maybe in Scripture, certainly in this letter to the Ephesians. So read along with me. Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, fe they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Thank you. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, great passage of scripture to come back to after vacation. Wives, submit to husbands. Next week, we letter to the Ephesians. I want to begin with this. Anytime we get to one of these passages of scripture where, where we have maybe contentious uh, uh, feelings or, or we've heard different opinions or we know that there are arguments about it, I find that it's very helpful for us to recall our hermeneutical principles. That's a fancy way of saying how we as a church handle Scripture, interpret the Scriptures. What are our lenses for discernment? The truth is everybody interprets. Everybody interprets, everybody discerns, even the most quote-unquote literal churches and theologians pick and choose and interpret through a particular lens. So here at Discovery, we try to be as upfront about this as possible. Our lens is this. We understand Scripture as this library, this collection of 66 different books that tell one big story. A library of 66 very different books, genres, authors, uh, uh, um, periods of time in which they were written that tell one big story. We call this 
the narrative approach to Scripture. All right, a narrative approach to Scripture. Now, if you're like, what is that? We did a series on this earlier in the year, what we talk about when we talk about the Bible. I believe it was in January. If you want to go back and take a look at that or listen to that on our podcast, you can fill in some of the blanks there. But a very quick summary is this. The Bible tells this big story, creation, how God created, that God created, and that he created this world to be good. But then human beings who are created in his image rebel against his created order, right? This is called the fall. Now, God at that point has options, right? What is he going to do about human rebellion? The good news of this big story of scripture is that God does not give up on his creation. He does not give up on human beings made in his image. He begins this plan that culminates in redemption. And the, the key moment in the, re, in the redemption part of the story is the coming of Jesus, Right? God in the flesh who lives with us, who teaches us, who ultimately gives his life for us on the cross and through his death and resurrection overcomes that sin and separation. And then we live sort of in between what we might call part three and part four of the story. Part four being full restoration, this truth, this great promise that at some point in the future, God is going to fully restore creation back to the way he always intended it to function and to flourish. You might say it this way, Genesis 1 and 2, all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. The way we talk about it here sometimes is this idea of shalom, wholeness, the way that God intended things to be. Shalom, broken, uh, broken shalom, restored shalom. That is the big story. So a couple of principles from that. All good interpretation begins with the question, where are we in the story? Where are we in the story? Well, as I already said, Ephesians chapter 5, just as we are today, comes at this moment in between redemption when Jesus came and gave his life for us and full restoration, the return of Jesus and the ultimate healing of God's creation. So we live just like the Ephesians in that kind of messy in-between part in the story between redemption and restoration. Good interpretation also will consider what is the context of this specific passage. Where are we in this book or letter? Who is the author? Who, were the, who was the original audience? What was unique about their particular context? And what does that context say about the, the message of this passage and why it is important and timely? And then what are the parallels that we can draw between their context and ours? So let's do a little bit of work here. Remember, Ephesians is written by this guy named Paul. Paul, one of the early uh, church leaders. We learned a lot about Paul earlier this year and last year when we spent a lot of time. Remember all that time we spent in the book of Acts? Right? Paul, one of the early church leaders, he's writing to uh, this, the, these people in Ephesus who he had spent three years with, which was one of the longest periods of time he spent. He knew well. He loved deeply, who he cared about very much. He's writing from jail, and he's most likely writing at the end of his life. And so he's giving them his best stuff, right? These are almost like his final words, and it's like, oh, this is the last thing I want you to hear. Here is what you need 
to know. And so this letter, it's one that's full of all kinds of encouragement. You can break it down very simply. The first three chapters are sort of big ideas, theological truths that boil down very simply to Paul wants them to know how much they are loved. God loves you so much you can't even comprehend how much God loves you. And then the second part of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, which is where we find ourselves now, is more of the practical side of that. Okay, if this is who you are, if God loves you this much, then this now is how you live. And he uses the phrase, walk. This is a phrase that if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard a lot. Maybe it's become a cliche. I want us to redeem this idea of walk. Right? He talks about walking in a manner worthy or Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, walking in love. If, if this is who you are, loved, what does it look like then to walk in that love? This is what the second part of the letter is all about. Finally, good interpretation always asks the question, what is the good news of this passage? And we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about this a lot this morning, actually, as we make our way through this. And we'll get to it again kind of at the end when we, when we come to communion. But what I want to say right here is this. Part of remembering or looking for discovering, if you will, the good news of a particular passage is to remember that the story moves. That the story is always moving somewhere. And so when you're in the Old Testament, it's moving towards Jesus. And when you're in the New Testament, it's moving from Jesus and the implications of his arrival towards this final restoration. It's important to remember the story is unfolding. It is progressing. It is dynamic, which is important, I think, for us to say out loud. Because sometimes we drop ourselves into these particular passages of Scripture and it sounds like, what? Like, does the Bible really endorse genocide? Uh, does the Bible really endorse the subjugation of women? And, and next week, does, does it really endorse slavery? Right? These can be things that, that like cause significant dissonance in our 21st century minds. But grounding ourselves in this story... And in this narrative approach to Scripture, the dynamic nature of the Bible, it helps us see that actually the Bible was way ahead of its time. Even on these, again, heavy, contentious topics, the Bible was way ahead of its time. And not only was it way ahead then, it still is subversive today in our quote-unquote progressive culture. Now, in, in chapter 5, again, beginning where we are today in verse 21 and, and through uh, chapter 6, verse 9, Paul gets into some really practical environments. Again, chapters 4 through 6 is the practical stuff. You are loved, now walk in the way of love. But in this particular section, it's sometimes referred to as the household codes. He's going to speak to some very real things, marriage, parenting, and work. And in each of these very practical environments, he is going to speak into a power dynamic that was at play in their world and I think is still very much at play in our world today. He's not just giving some advice for these areas of life. He is demonstrating how the gospel, how the good day, but also of ours as well. Let me just talk about this briefly here for a moment. In each of these three things, each of these cases, again, marriage, parenting, and work, 
he begins, the first thing he does is name the assumed wisdom of the day. Now remember, this is a letter that would have been read out loud. And so as, as somebody who probably hadn't even read it themselves before is reading this out loud, everyone is sitting there hearing it together for the first time. So when Paul says something like, wives submit to your husbands, everyone goes, oh, yeah, totally. Because that just made sense. That was how it worked in their culture. Wives were basically property. And so a good wife would just sort of fit into the hierarchy of the home of the day. He starts by speaking to these kind of, again, uh, 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 what they would have known. Wives submit, children and slaves obey. But then he speaks to the person with more social power. He talks to the husbands. He speaks to the parents. And in particular, he speaks to the fathers. And then he also speaks to the masters. The fact, the fact that Paul addresses those with more social power at all, that he even brings them into the conversation was radical in and of itself, subversive in its own right. But then, not only does he mention them and speak to them, he challenges those with more social power to adopt a sacrificial posture, to walk in the way of love in these positions of power. You can, again, imagine, if you will, the person reading this out loud, they're like, okay, wives submit to your husbands, blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. Should I read this part out loud? I don't know. I don't know about it. Like, my is Did he really say that? Like, that's how it just would have been shocking that he would have addressed these other other groups of people and then also challenged them to live differently, to sacrifice their power, to walk in the way of love. These passages that can feel regressive to us are actually quite revolutionary. And so here is another principle for us today, the way the ways in which we engage in our practical environments as Jesus followers, whether that's dating or marriage or parenting or school or budgeting or work or whatever the categories may be, the ways that we today engage in those places should be just as revolutionary for us as it was for them back then. It's going to look a little bit different, of course, because our world is very different, but it should be just as revolutionary for us today as it was back then. So let's talk now about one of these revolutionary ideas. This whole section, this whole section hangs on verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is an idea that very succinctly summarizes many of the big ideas that Paul has mentioned before things like unity, right? Being bound together, new humanity, one body, people who are loved, dearly loved children who are called to walk in a manner worthy, who are called to walk in love. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, <clears throat> Some modern translations do not include this verse in this section. They like to bump it up to the next section. The most egregious example of this is the ESV, which has a very 
uh, specific and particular gender agenda behind the way that they have translated the scripture and the way that they've organized different passages uh, of scripture. But submitting to one another summarizes not just what Paul is going to say in this bit about husbands and wives, but also what he has been saying for the last several chapters. There really should be no break at all. Just this one, this one idea that goes all the way through. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in our, in our American culture... Mutual submission is hard for us. Uh, on the one hand, we don't like the idea of submitting to anyone, right? But then on the other hand, we, have, we still have like hierarchies baked into our cultural imagination. We really like to know who's in charge, right? And part of that is because we like to complain. We want to we know who, who do we go to when we, you know, need to vent a little bit. But we still have this hierarchy baked into our head. And yet at the same time, we also don't want to submit to anyone. And so mutual submission kind of hurts our brains. It evokes images of the Spider-Man meme, right? Of like, you, 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 what, who? How does it work? If we all submit to one another, who's in charge? And so we bring some of these things with us into church where we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and we don't know how to handle it. <laughs> but by the way, this is not just something that Paul made up, right? This comes directly from Jesus. Jesus, who completely reorders our definitions of power and greatness Mark chapter 10, one, one great example of this, right? The Gentiles, they lord it over one another, but not so with you. In the church, we submit to one another. Now, quick definition of submission. What we're not talking about here is be a doormat, roll over, do whatever anyone tells you to do. All right, that's a very weak and, and unhelpful definition of submission. What it means to is we open ourselves up to one another. That we are open people. That, that we are here to learn from one another. That we believe, Genesis chapter 1, everyone is created in God's image. And so there's something about this God that we worship that I can discover by being in community with other people. By being known by other people. Right? So submission is not just like, okay, just tell me what to do or whatever, like, this sort of passive, weak thing. No, submission is, is, is this generous opening yourself up to the community. What do I bring? What do I offer? What do I receive? How can I be formed by this place? We submit to one another in the church. No one has ultimate authority and power. Only Jesus has that, which, by the way, is really Paul's main message here in the middle of this section uh, when he starts talking about the analogy of Jesus and the church. Jesus is our authority in the church. And so there's this revolutionary reshaping of power and authority in the church. Now, that sounds great, right? That sounds lovely. But we also know that power and authority get abused in the church all the time. Sometimes more so in church than in other places, which is the total opposite of the way that it is supposed to work. 
If you've been paying attention over the last year, the last couple of years, you've been inundated with story after story of spiritually abusive leaders who have used their positions, oftentimes propped up by very poorly interpreted passages of Scripture, to do great harm to people. And it's an evil thing when people use their authority to, to uh, abuse other people. I think it's an even more evil thing in the church because the, the power structure of the church is supposed to be the total opposite of that. Are you with me? There are, there are just to be honest, there are churches like this right here in our community. Do not submit yourself to an abusive church. Now, the, the swing, I think, is then to not want to submit yourself to any church. The issue here to me, though, is not with submission. The problem is abuse of power and authority. Mutual submission is actually this beautiful reality that, that isn't just like an esoteric idea. It is exemplified. It is, it is the essence of our Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Spirit exist in this beautiful community of self-giving, sacrificial love. The three in oneness of the Trinity is our letter. This gets right to the essence of what is uh, of the core of our universe. What is true about the God who created all of this. That God exists in a community of mutual submission. Now, quick side note here. Let's talk about some heresy. There is, uh, there is a heretical teaching that has uh, come out in the last 30, 40 years, primarily from the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I think I'm saying that right. The, the idea of this, the, the, the title of this is uh, the eternal subordination of Jesus or the eternal subordination of the Son. And the idea is that Jesus, in, in becoming a man and, again, living with us, the whole great good news of the redemption part of the story, that in doing so, he has eternally subordinated himself to the rest of the Trinity. And it's one of those things that like sounds good, like, oh yeah, like he gave everything up, gave up heaven to, to like come save us. But at the heart of it is this desire to see, to say, see, look, hierarchy is baked into the thing. And I think it's a deep, deep misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is three in oneness, mutual submission. Self-giving, sacrificial love, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you, hear, if you hear this teaching, that this is what Jesus has done, you should automatically go, bing, heresy. I don't like to throw that word around at all, by the way. But I feel like it's worth mentioning here in this conversation. Now, back to mutual submission. Again, our, in our culture, in our moment, we do not like limitations. But there is great freedom in saying yes to only a few things. I think this is why Paul goes right from mutual submission into this conversation about marriage. Because this is part of the mystery of marriage. That in committing to one partner for life, you open yourself up to limitless possibilities. That, again, is the total inverse of our American way of thinking, which is keep every possibility open at all times because you might miss out on something good. 
No, it's the other way around. If you say yes to a few things, you open yourself up to all sorts of possibilities. In a similar way, when you limit yourself to a church, to a particular community, to be present in this place at this time, that can feel stifling. But, but what about the, the way that my old church did things? Or what about this new community over here? Or what about this podcast? Or that pastor said this thing. Now, I'm not saying cut yourself off from all other people and voices. But to use myself as an example, I am the pastor of this church. Right? Discovery Christian Church. I am beholden to these elders. I am here to serve you. Which means that I have to say no to some other possibilities. But those limits... Those limits help create the environment where God is at work in me. Where God is forming me, teaching me how to walk in the way of love. Not in, an, in some sort of abstract way, but in this very real, like, with the people here. With myself here. Too many of us, we live with these competing allegiance without any margin in our life. There's this paradoxical freedom to being all in. Extreme example here, so just kind of bear with me for a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go big and then I'm going to walk it back, okay? <laughs> it, again, I think part of the reason why Paul brings up marriage immediately after submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is because it creates this, this very real analogy for us. If we cheat on our spouse, if I cheat on Amy, I hurt her and I hurt myself, right? I sever that one fleshness that Paul talks about, quoting Genesis chapter 2 in verse 31. In a similar way, if I cheat on my church community, I hurt myself and I hurt the church. I told you this is a radical idea. Now, let me walk it back, okay? <laughs> we are not legalistic about this here. And we live in a very connected world. It is wise to learn from different people and other voices. Our church is part of the church. And at the end of the day, we are all, or hopefully, are all on the same team. So this is not meant to be like a scare tactic. But I do, I really do want us to sit with the challenge of mutual submission. I want us to consider deeply, not just again in an intellectual way, but what are the practical implications of what Paul is saying here? To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some questions for us. Am I involved in too many communities? By the way, it's good to be involved in multiple communities. We even encourage that here as part of like our discipleship, right? that you see the, the places where you live and work and play as part of your life and, and mission as a follower of Jesus. But still worth asking, am I pulled in too many different directions? Am I involved in too many communities? One thing that we do is we get involved in a lot of different places so that we never have to be beholden to anyone. Right? And so then we, we, we are never fully committed. We don't allow especially church to form us because we're just all over the place. Are my allegiances divided in unhealthy ways? Why do I have a hard time committing to a church? And then in what practical ways 
can I mutually submit? Again, open myself up to people at discovery. Now, well, mutual submission within the church is the overarching principle that Paul is speaking about here. We need to talk about marriage for a couple minutes, okay? We are going to say something about this. So to begin, let me be very clear. We do not endorse, nor do we believe that this passage is teaching the subjugation of women. I do not believe that Paul is interested in who is in charge in your house. I think he's far more interested in how marriage is forming you to be an imitator of Jesus. A couple of technical issues that I think support this idea. First of all, Paul only tells women to submit one time. Now you might, if you're paying attention, you're like, no, he says it two times. Well, actually, verse 22 in the Greek doesn't use the word submit. That word only shows up that one time uh, in verse 24. The best way of reading that is to say, wives as to your husbands. Now, obviously, it's implied, so I'm not trying to be cute here, but it only says submit one time. And again, this is one of those places where like our English translations can uh, overly guide us, I'll just say it that way, in our understanding of, of a particular passage. Also, Paul has way more to say to the husbands than he does to the wives. Right? Just, I mean, just look at like it's this and this, right? That's interesting to take note of as well. Now, verse 23, also a very contested verse. This idea of the husband as the head. And in some circles, there's like books about what that means and analogies and like four-star generals and three-star generals and like all kinds of crazy things. Here, here's what I want you to see, though. When... Paul says the husband is the head of the wife. He immediately connects that to Jesus. And so whatever, you know, however you want to kind of break that down or whatever analogy you want to use there, don't miss the connection to Jesus who does what? Who inverts the power structure of his time and our time as well. And so headship is not so much about being in charge of anything. It's another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says this even more clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The lack of a flowchart is not what ruins a marriage. Great marriages are built on sacrifice on a delight in the other person, on being a fan of each other. They are built on selflessness. Marriage is built on love and not just romantic love, but the gritty, determined love of a covenant and a commitment to be in this thing till death do us part. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, while all of this, you know, may sound great, maybe it sounds troubling to you, I don't know. But I do think like sometimes when, when I give this teaching, there's this question about, well, so then is there any difference between men and women? Is this just like eradicating gender differences? I, I do not think that that is what this teaching is about. I think Paul and Scripture as a whole affirm 
gender differences. I think this is part of why he uses different terms, terms like love and submission, love and respect, to honor those differences both literally but also those differences culturally. Because men did and still do in many ways have more social power, there is a particular call to mutually submit through sacrificial love. To seeing Jesus as our example of what it looks like to lay your life down for someone else. A particular call for men to let go of power, to use that to serve. And because women did, and in many cases still do, have less social power, there is a particular call to submission and respect to essentially not get into a power struggle. Now, there's all kinds of complicating factors here. And, of course, every marriage is different. And if you are in an abusive relationship, that changes things dramatically. But in general, in the ideal, both husband and wife, in their unique ways, given their temperament and personality and backgrounds and all these sorts of things, are called to basically sacrifice for the good of the relationship. And there may be some very different ways in which we do that, but both need to do that in order for a marriage to thrive. The key word here, I think, actually is not even the word submission. I think it really is the word one another. This idea of mutuality. That we're in this together. And because everyone is different, because every relationship is different, there aren't rules for marriage. Do these five things and it will all work out perfectly for you. Right? Be very cautious about those sorts of formulas. Everybody's a little bit different and so there's all kinds of, of ways that we work this out. But here's, the, here's kind of the foundational truth. Marriage is a mutual submission crucible. Teaching us the imitation of Christ. Now, one, one just real practical thing, because this does come up in a lot of conversations, is, well, what happens, though, if we're trying to make a big... In my pastoral experience, this is oftentimes more of a theoretical question than a practical question. And it's, it's like a question that I think comes up because people just want to know, like, do I get to make the call? Do I have permission to, like, do that? Again, each couple will have to work this out in their own way. But let me just give a real brief how to make big decisions in a mutually submissive marriage. This is going to be super short, and then there's all kinds of ways that this has to get worked out. But first, as a general ground rule, do not move forward until you both have peace. Now, peace does not mean that you feel good about it, everybody's happy, um, you've solved every last thing, and you've, you know, checked all the boxes, but in my experience, there is a moment where there's tension, 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 tension. I think we're ready to make the call. And part of marriage is learning how to move through that tension to get to that place of like, no, we should not do this. Or yeah, I think we're ready to do this. Don't move forward until you both have peace. Second, and this is a big part of this, is communicate. You need to talk about it a lot. And what you will find is that in the course of a marriage, there are seasons and there are cycles and there are times where husbands, you just need to make a decision and there are times where wives, you just need to make a decision and you have to figure out what kind of season and where you are and all of that. But the way that you get there is by talking about it. 
a lot to the point of like, are we talking about this again? But that's actually a good place to be because that means that you are continuing to communicate. And then finally, bringing us back to where we started, remember that you are part of a church. And this doesn't mean that you need to like share your stuff with everybody. But the gift of the church is that there are other people who have wisdom, who have experience, who you can say, look, we are stuck. We cannot figure out what to do about this thing. Teach us. <laughs> Help us out. What are we missing? What are some questions that we need to, to be asking ourselves? You have this collective communal wisdom at your disposal. Don't go it alone. I think this is actually one of the reasons why hierarchical marriage structures are appealing is because we are so independent. We're, we're so independent. We don't want to submit to other people in the church. So we have to create this structure for our house where somebody's in charge. And I think that that completely misses the gift of the community, the gift of the church. You have other people that you can seek out wisdom and learn from. Now, I want to invite the band back up onto the stage as we get ready for communion. As we land the plane this morning, I want to say this. Whether you are married, dating, single, whatever stage of life you might be in, this text asks some really big questions of us. And so I know I just spent the last couple of minutes speaking to married people, but I want to come back to this place where this is really something we all have to sit with. What does it look like for us to mutually submit to each other out of reverence for Christ? Am I committed to a church community? Is that community worth committing to? What does it look like for me right now in whatever stage of life I am to walk in the way of love, to be formed as an imitator of Christ? The good news, remember, back, remember this principle we talked about earlier? The good news of this passage of scripture is not that we have a formula for married life. The good news of this, this passage of scripture is that Christ loved the church. That Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. For me and for you, even when we had wandered off, rebelled, gone in our own, own way. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is, this is the good news of Jesus, right? This is the God. Truly submitting, being sacrificial to himself for us. We remember this. And these elements, the juice and the bread representing his body and blood, his body broken, his blood poured out for us on our behalf, for our redemption. So that shalom can be restored, right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. I do not know what part of this conversation today you need to sit with a little bit more, but take a moment, reflect on that. But as you come to the table today, as we take communion together, may you remember, may you remember, may you know Christ loved the church. 
each and every one of us and gave himself up for us. When you're ready, let's take communion together.